The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Vanessa. The last uh, month or so, we've been looking at the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Um, We're following the model that Jesus gave to his disciples uh, after Easter. He said to them, go study the scriptures, go pray about them, and see what the Old Testament has to say about me. It's all about me. And so we're reading the Old Testament with an eye to finding Jesus there. Specifically, we're looking at some of the messianic prophecies in Isaiah. Um, The context, if you go to the Old Testament, God said that he was going to redeem the world through a holy nation, Israel. He was going to create a people who would help the world understand the Messiah that he would send. And so he establishes Israel, takes rescues them from slavery, takes them to the promised land, gives them the Lord Sinai, and they become his holy people. But they're constantly being led astray by kings who, instead of looking to God for guidance, look to their own skills as politicians, make foolish deals with their neighbors, chase after the gods of their neighbors. And we saw at the beginning of Isaiah that one king in particular, King Ahaz, rejected God, began sacrificing his children, though he was the king of God's holy people, started making crazy deals with the empires that were threatening him to the point where he revealed to them all the treasures in Jerusalem. And eventually the empire comes down and sweeps through Israel and Judah, conquers Jerusalem, takes, destroys the temple, takes away all the riches of Jerusalem. And so Isaiah is speaking into the middle of that chaos, into the middle of this group of people who are besieged by these armies but are not trusting God. And Isaiah's job is to remind them that God is faithful, to speak the truth to them. We saw, though, 
that Ahaz is a king too far. And God rejects that whole line, the whole uh, house of David, as corrupt. And beginning with Ahaz, begins to weave into um, the truth-telling to Israel a series of visions, prophecies, glimpses of how God is going to redeem the world through Israel, despite the fact that they're so corrupt and they stray. And so we've been looking at these prophecies, these glimpses of this future Messiah. Um, so let's have a look. This is the third of these glimpses, the third of the prophecies. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Who's Jesse? Jesse was David's father. Jesse had eight sons. David was the youngest. And David became a king. He was the first king after Saul. David's son was Solomon. And there is a, a line of kings, the house of David, that ends up with King Ahaz. Well, basically, Isaiah is saying, that line is dead. Notice the imagery there. The imagery is of a felled tree. The tree is chopped down. All that is left is the stump in the ground, dead, no signs of life or vitality. The lineage is gone. But there is, there is still hope because there is still God, the source of life. And so the promise here is even though that human lineage is dead, there is still life. There will be a new shoot, a new descendant through the line of David, separate from the kings, through which God will work. And this is not just an ordinary lineal human descent. If we could go to the uh, last slide, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand. So Jesse is not only the place where the shoot comes from, the future, but the root of Jesse, that is the lineage that goes all the way back to Adam, the one guaranteed by God, that will be the source of the vitality of this shoot. You know, it's reminiscent of uh, when Jesus is challenged. He said, they challenge him about Abraham's teaching, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. It's a reminder that God, that specifically Jesus, is the source, as well as the result of this lineage. The shoot will come. There is hope. And this hope is this promised Messiah. Now, if you've been coming, you begin to recognize what Isaiah is doing with his prophecies. He's sketching out a vision of this Messiah. Remember the first one we looked at, Isaiah 7. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. That's the first outline. There's going to be a descendant son, and we're going to call him Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's the outline of what this son is going to look like, what he's going to be like. And here, Isaiah fills in more of the sketch. Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. He will receive God's Spirit. Now that's not common. Only Moses, um, Joshua, David, they were the only ones on which the Spirit rested and stayed, who dwelled with them. So this is going to be a significant leader on a par with those leaders. And he's going to have a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counselor and of might. That's why he's going to be a wonderful counselor. Because he will have this spirit of wisdom. A spirit of counsel, direct from God. Verse 3. He will not judge by what he, what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice and he will give decisions for the poor. He won't see by eyes. He will see spiritually because he is the spirit of counsel, of wisdom, of insight, the spirit of knowledge of the truth. He'll be called Mighty God. Why? Because he will have a spirit of counsel and might. Verse 4, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. He will have authority and insight and power and might. And why will he be called Prince of Peace? Because, verse 7, Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his wrist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. He's talking about a whole new world, ruled by a prince of peace, where there's no more war, there's no more fear, there's no more violence, there's no more bloodshed. This coming Messiah is going to change radically the order of things. And so you see what Isaiah is doing. He gives you an outline, and bit by bit he begins to fill that outline out, sketch in the details fill in the details of the coming Messiah. Fair enough. But I've left something out. Perhaps you noticed. There's going to be another kind of spirit with him too. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. What could that possibly mean? Remember, we're talking about Jesus here. This is Jesus who goes to the cross. This is Jesus who can summon legions of angels. Why on earth would God be, why on earth would Jesus be fearful of anything? What does it mean that the fear of God is a delight? And by the way, this is throughout the Bible. The notion of the fear of the Lord, the idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, throughout the Bible, and certainly in the Old Testament, but what could it possibly mean? 
And so we've looked at some of these other ideas, wonderful counselor and mighty God, God's omnipotence, God's omniscience. I'd like to focus on the fear of the Lord because it's, it's actually a weird idea. Don't we worship the God of love? Don't we, aren't we forgiven? What do we have to fear? Well, I think it's true. It's a tendency of modern Christians, people like us, to look at our salvation as a given. We're, also, we're all about God's grace. The comfort of Christ is throughout the New Testament. Salvation seems natural to us because who wouldn't love somebody as wonderful as me? It does, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Do a few bad things here and there, but on the whole, why not love me? And we all feel that way. We're not so bad. And God loves us. We're told it all the time. Every time you come to church, Jesus died for you. Jesus is filled with grace and love for you. But it's a re- good to remind ourselves every now and again that God is genuinely scary. God, if you read, if you read uh, Narnia, the Narnia Chronicles, C.S. Lewis, there's a wonderful place where the character Lucy hears about the Christ figure in Narnia, Aslan, and he's this tremendous lion. And she says, is he safe? Should I be afraid of him? And the inhabitants, one of the inhabitants, Mr. Beaver, says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. And it's the same with God. You cannot think about God's love, God's forgiveness and grace, until you've come to terms with just how scary he is. What do I mean? God made the world, all that is, and he can unmake it. He showed that with the flood. Every one of us exists moment to moment because we are sustained by God's power. We have no independent life of our own, and neither does the universe. It exists solely at God's pleasure, moment to moment. That's power. And real power is scary. Some years ago, I read a, a biography by a reporter who was involved in Watergate. And the book was about how, after Watergate, um, politics became much more cynical, and reporters became much more cynical about power, much more jaded by the institutions of power. But he said, no matter how cynical or jaded he or others felt, as soon as the president walked into the room, they snapped to attention. His presence made things significant. Words, decisions made by this person could change the world, could certainly make or unmake a reporter in the room. This person is a center of real power. And when this person is around, you paid attention. No matter how jaded or cynical, there is an awe created by real power. A fear. Real power is significant because it has consequences. It has a weightiness to it independent of what we think. 
By the way, those words, weightiness, significance, consequences, they're the root word, the root words for the concept of glory in the Old Testament. God's glory is his weightiness, his significance. What he says or does has consequences. And that's why when God's glory comes to you, it's terrifying. You're suddenly revealed as a fragile little creature. To encounter God's glory is to be present to naked, raw power. The power of life and death. The power to make or unmake worlds. And it's a challenge. And it's terrifying. Once when I was a kid, I recklessly climbed down a dam to the outlet. It was a hydroelectric dam. It was a group of us. And they had these vast jets of water shooting out. You could have driven a car. They were so vast. And there was this little concrete supporting ledge, and we would crawl out to it until our faces were within a few feet of this humongous jet. It was so powerful, so much noise. You couldn't really hear the noise. You felt it. Everything trembled. And even if a friend screamed an inch from your ear, you couldn't hear them. And this jet was right there. And we, we would challenge each other and egg each other on to put our fingers closer and closer to it. Or, God forbid, touch your nose or your lips to it. If it had pulsed, it would have just washed us away. Raw, pure power. It was terrifying. And it was wonderful. And it was awful. And it was dangerous. And there was freedom there and fierce joy, and it was glorious. It was just water. I never forget the feeling of it, the feeling of being surrounded by the power of that jet. Well, what do you think it's like to draw close to the source of everything, the power behind all power? And what is it like to draw close to that power when you know he is holy, and perfect, and you are not. What is it like to come face to face with a God of infinite power and infinite holiness and infinite justice? At the same time that um, Isaiah was speaking to Judah, which was the kingdom in the south where Jerusalem was, God's people were divided into a second kingdom, the kingdom of Israel to their north. And there was another prophet, Amos, and he was speaking to Israel at the same time as Isaiah was speaking to Judah. Listen to what Amos has to say about God. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away, no one will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. That they are driven into exile by their enemies. There I will command the sword to slay them. 
I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. You ever heard of someone preach on that, by the way? I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. Imagine tucking your children into bed with that one. That is a damning, damning verse. You imagine the God who's omnipotent saying that. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. That's a terrifying God who can say something like that. That is a genuine curse. We forget this aspect of God. The God of wrath, the God who seeks out injustice and punishes it. It's relatively easy to live in the West and think about our comfort, but in places where atrocities are being committed, where wars are being committed, where whole populations are being slaughtered and raped. This is the God they depend on, the God of justice, who will not sleep until the injustice against them has been righted, the God who will not tolerate injustice in the world amongst his people. In America, uh, the beginning of America, I think they were made of sterner stuff, the Puritans. And there was a great sermon back then by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I think probably many of you were assigned it if you went to college or you're in high school. When I was at uh, Princeton Seminary, he was buried down there. We would go to his um, uh, sort of like a tomb, like a raised stone uh, on his birthday, and we'd sing carols there. He knew about the God of wrath. So I'm going to give you part of his sermon. Now, for this to work, you've got to imagine me. Not friendly, happy Tony. I'm Jonathan Edwards. I have got a severe black robe on. I have a starched high collar with frills around it. White hair. And I look down my nose at you like smelly peasants showing up at the castle door disdainful. And this is how I preach. I'm not going to get this right, but I'm going to try. I've always wanted to try this. Oh, sinner, that's you. Oh, sinner, consider the fateful and fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire and the wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked. Provoked and incensed as much against you as against the many damned in hell. Speaking of Christians, not speaking of ones who are doomed. You hang by a slender thread. Talking about Christians with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. Have you ever thought it itself that way? Held above the wrath of the fires of hell? And you have nothing, nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you for one moment. That's our situation. The God that holds you over the pits of hell, much as one who holds a spider 
or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you, is dreadfully provoked by you, is wrath towards you and I, burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have to to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. And that's if you're a Christian. You have heard God talked about in that way? Do you believe in a God of justice and holiness and divine wrath against sin? We are all sinners. And therefore, this is a description of how we look in God's sight. Remember, he's perfect. He's holy. This is the idea of the human predicament. The fundamental reality of human life is that this is our situation. We hang by a thread. And that's why the Bible says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Unless you recognize that that is the human predicament. Unless you start from that premise, then the Bible and God and Jesus and salvation make absolutely no sense. Because only sinners without hope need a Savior. Only people who believe that God is the only way out will turn to him. And by the way, if this is true, if this is an accurate description of reality, that all human life is dangling by a thread over judgment, then not paying attention to this makes ordinary life just a matter of rearranging deck deck chairs on the Titanic, playing musical chairs as the plane goes down. Nothing else matters if this is true. And that's why the Bible repeatedly says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've got to begin with this to make sense of human life. This is the description of the human situation, the human predicament. And any other description, anything that leaves this out, is going to be foolishness. Because it has no future. It has no ultimate significance. What are we going to do? Well, according to Jonathan Edwards, nothing. We have nothing to lay hold of. Nothing to keep off the flames. Nothing that we have ever done. Nothing that we will ever do. We are completely without hope. Unless there's another side to God. If God was just wrath, if God was just holy, divine justice, we would be in a terrible place. We would be literally damned to hell. Everybody. That's the human situation. But there's another side to God. And there is another kind of fear when you think about God. And that's the fearful intimacy of a God 
who is love. Have you ever been truly let into somebody's heart? First love, innocent, unabused, where everything is laid open, where the person makes himself completely vulnerable to you, completely exposed, no walls, no self-protection, the innermost self opened up for you. That is a fearful place to be. Because almost anything other than doing the same yourself can do such terrible damage. A bad word. A careless step. You can cause such hurt when a person has put no barriers to protect themselves. You can harm and break you can destroy the most precious gift of all. It's fearful, but it's also glorious. Because nothing mundane, nothing ordinary, is going to be said or done in such a situation. It's going to draw out your best, hopefully. Imagine something else. You are, you are climbing a high, a vast mountain, a rock of ages, if you will. And there's a great storm approaching. And you desperately are looking for any cover, any refuge, any cave or cleft that will protect you from this coming storm. It's a terror. And suddenly, miraculously, that great rock clefts and you are let in out of the terror of the storm into a safe place. But a place of a different kind of intimacy, a different kind of terror, a fearful intimacy within that great mountain, in that cleft. Why does the rock cleft? Because of love. We sing about it in that hymn, Rock of Ages. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is love that cleft the rock, God's love, that led us in to his love, escaping the terror outside. But remember, we're still loathsome. We are still that loathsome reptile that, Jareth, that Jonathan Edwards talked about. If we're going to come in out of the terror of the approaching storm, somebody is going to have to take our place. Somebody is going to have to take that loathsomeness away. Somebody is going to have to be kicked outside to face that wrath. And it's a terrible wrath. Who do you know who would do that? Well, you know from the New Testament that it was Jesus. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin. To be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And where it says, who had no sin, to be sin, you can translate that as a sin offering. 
literally, in Hebrew, a holocaust. That was the name of the sin offering to God burnt on the altar. That's where the word comes from. What does that mean? Well, it means that you have Jesus. He's the Messiah. This is the one we're looking to. And he leaves God, and he comes to be one of us, because he's coming into our world to take our place. And then he goes to the cross. And what happens on the cross? A substitution is made. A transference is made. The human Jesus takes human sin on himself so that all who put their faith and trust in him can become members of his family, can become safely part of his relationship with God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, think of Jesus. For his entire existence... He is surrounded by that divine, selfless love of God. That's his natural place to be. A love that is so giving, so vulnerable, so without barriers and walls that three become one. No protection at all in that place. Everything fully visible, everything fully transparent, fully available to all three together for all eternity. But what happens when that love is replaced by wrath? What happens when instead of that intimacy being exposure to divine love, what happens when that exposure is to the wrath of God? An infinite wrath against all the sins of all the people that are going to put their trust in Jesus. What do you think that's going to feel like? When your lover is suddenly turned into this punisher who knows all the buttons, who knows all the vulnerabilities, because he's already there. In Luke, Jesus says this, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. It's the cup of wrath he's talking about. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood. That is love. That's why he went. He knew what it was going to cost, not the pain of the cross. Human beings suffered that regularly back in the Roman times. It was the wrath of God in the very center of his being. And he did it because he loves us. That's fearful. It's terrifying. And that's why he's worthy of our worship. I'm going to end here. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, we can't comprehend what you went through. But we, I am so grateful grateful that you did. Teach us, Lord, to fear you, fear your wrath, celebrate your wrath against injustice, fear your love, celebrate a love bigger than anything we can imagine. Lord, show us 
We'll never be worthy of your love, but show us how to celebrate that love with each other. We pray in Jesus' name.